Hello everyone, my name is Zach Wright and welcome back to another episode of By Study and By Faith, where we go over critical thinking skills and how they relate to LDS theology and history. And so I'm excited to launch into today, today's episode. We have a, um, a lot of good stuff to talk about, but before we launch into it, I, I would like to go over just a couple of things that I'm super excited about personally. One of them is the upcoming FAIR conference that's going over a lot of really interesting topics. It's, uh, the conference itself is from August 2nd to August 4th, and you're just going to have a lot of these landmark hard-hitting scholars that, that really know their stuff. So for instance, I know a couple of really big names that are out there. You have Dan Peterson talking about understanding the, like, understanding history and, um, and like presentism and the like. You also have another, you have another professor, Stephen Smoot is going over the book of Abraham and you just have lots of really great ones. A, a good friend of mine, another one, Jennifer Roach, who also does a Come Follow Me podcast here on FAIR, is going over abuse in the church. And so there are lots of really important topics that are really going to, that are, that are going over. Now I'm excited to go and I hope that you're all able to come to or at least listen in online. So um, enough kind of introduction. Let's go ahead and get started talking about evaluating sources, which should be rather exciting. So in the last article in this series, we discussed some kind of basic elementary ideas behind critical thinking, like asking questions, evaluating worldviews, and how those two skills might help people deal with controversial topics behind LDS theology and history. And I still stand by what I said. Those skills are essential for approaching difficult topics. We still have a long ways to go for our goal of learning by study and by faith. So that prompts some questions. So what should we be asking questions about? And what worldview should we practice identifying? So the short answer is that you can do pretty much what you want with those skills. They, as I said before, they're useful in just about every single domain of our lives. To do that, we need to first go over how to evaluate which sources are good and which ones are not. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. Specifically, I'll be going over what makes a good source in general, what makes a good source from a historical perspective, and then give an example about how I would deal with a historical source. So let's get into it. What is a good source? Now, you may consider that to be kind of an odd question, but I, I think it's important for a couple of reasons. So we talked about how critical thinkers last time, they're not just passive consumers of knowledge. It's not just like we're sitting down and we're learning all this stuff and then we're never going to use it. Now, remember, the whole premise behind being a critical thinker is that we're using the information that we have to solve problems. We're using it in a practical and helpful way, not only to ourselves, but to others. And we use that information to like accomplish our goals, solve problems, and all that good stuff. Because there is a lot of good stuff that also has a tendency to work against us because there is a lot of information out there. And just as we would want to make sure that we use the right tool for the right job, like we would want to use a hammer to pound in a nail or like a lawnmower to mow the lawn, we want to make sure that we use the right information for the right job. And in other words, we need good sources to rely on in order to accomplish those tasks. So when I ask what makes a good source, 
What I'm really asking is, how can I determine what sources are going to help me solve a problem? And let's explore that for a moment too. So what I kind of picked out from what I think a good source is, is that it has to be in line with the truth. That is, a good source needs to be in line with what occurred in the past and what's occurring right now. We can't really speak a lot for the future. We don't really know what that's going to look like, but we can say that it's in that certain items of information are in line with past and present events. Now, of course, this presupposes that that it that there is some kind of objective truth out there to be known and that we can actually know this truth. We talked a little bit about presuppositions in our last episode. So, for an example of this, putting aside the efforts of the wonderful editors of this series that I work with, I, I can't have written this article and not have written this article. One of those things has to be true and the other one has to, has to not. Those two, those two things are mutually exclusive. But this, of course, also works for theoretical concepts. As long as we both have the same conceptualization of numbers, 2 plus 2 equals 4, not 40. So there, there is some kind of measurement that provides us a sufficient level of certainty about something that occurred in the past or does occur now, regardless of whether or not that method is known to us. <laughs> that was kind of a mouthful. It roughly it means that events happen and they can be known with decent certainty. I think that's fair to say. Even if we, we don't know how to do that yet. Good sources are in line with reality is the bottom line there. But secondly, the sources need to be applicable to what we're trying to do. As I said before, there's a lot of information out there for us to consume, but even if it was possible for us to learn all of it in this life, it's unnecessary and impractical to do so. Some of our problems are far too important to forego some kind of discerning process when we're looking at information. Um, for example, I could explain that the sun is primarily composed of gases, but that information in itself isn't going to be very useful when you're teaching your kids about basic addition. Does that mean that the sun isn't made of gases or that I'm lying when I don't tell people that what the sun is made of? I would say no at face value and I would hope that you'd agree with me, but that's kind of where I, where I jump to when it comes to sources being applicable. So there we have it, right? A good source is both true and relevant. Well, uh, our critical thinker, in my opinion, would rightfully answer yes and no. As I'm about to demonstrate, uh, picking good sources is, is kind of a process that's a little bit easier said than done. A lot of the time, and for different reasons, the sources that we read aren't completely objective or they aren't fully comprehensive in their analyses. This is because we are emotional creatures and all of our experiences are primarily subjective by nature. So I, I put a, a quote that I kind of put in, in the original one. It's kind of long, so I'm not going to read it here. But it essentially talks about this idea that if you stick your hand in a bucket of cold water and you stick your other hand in a bucket of hot water and then you put both of those hands into a bucket of kind of warm water, you're going to be experiencing two very different realities at the same time. It's, it's one objective event in the sense that you're putting both hands into the, the warm bucket of water, but the experience that you have in both of your hands is going to be 
vastly, vastly different. If you say that when you stick both hands in, that the, the water is both cold and hot, that's not necessarily wrong. You're just reporting the experiences that you're having with both of your hands. And that's, again, subjective. In this manner, a source that is primarily a human experience, which, to be fair, is the vast majority of historical and, I would say, theological discourse, especially if we're talking about things like um, gaining information by the Spirit. Those, that's a very personal, it's a very subjective experience. Then, by that same token, it really can't be completely objective, which makes our job as critical thinkers kind of difficult. Please don't misunderstand me. I, I'm not saying that we, we can't trust anything or anyone. That, that doesn't really help us as critical thinkers go about solving problems. It, it just, in the long run, it doesn't work to try and do everything by ourselves. So all I'm saying is that there's no perfect way to determine the validity and reliability of, of a source. And in this sense, the trustworthiness of a source is, is kind of somewhat subjective in as much as it's we as people value different things and we, we have to choose what to listen to and what we don't listen to. And it's kind of a messy part of reality, but it is something that we as critical thinkers have to deal with. Even so, each of these should be considered when qualifying what makes a good source. So both the, we have to make sure that the sources are both in line with reality and also pertain to what we're trying to accomplish. So we're gonna launch into a few historical criteria that I think would be useful in helping to analyze a good source from a historical perspective. Um, but the recommendations I'll be making the upcoming sources are, are useful and practical guidelines and the process isn't perfect and that's why I dedicated so much of the previous article to being able to ask questions and evaluate worldviews. Those skills are going to come in handy when we are going about analyzing any kind of source, whether it be historical or otherwise, but particularly for these historical sources. In this process of evaluating a lot of these documents, I'll also just recognize that you're going to make mistakes. All of us all of us are, we, we're not perfect. I, I, I urge the reader to make those mistakes early, quickly, and to be patient with themselves as they learn to evaluate sources in a better way. To wrap up this section, there are a few things that go into what makes a good source and what doesn't. As critical thinkers, we should be looking for sources that are both true and useful for our purposes. Furthermore, we should be be careful when dealing with sources by acknowledging the imperfections of the writer's report, both in terms of bias and potentially incorrect viewpoints, but also acknowledging that they're imperfect by how they can't really be comprehensive and entirely objective in their analysis. We have to choose what to believe, taking into account the good, the bad, and the ugly parts of each source. And as critical thinkers, we need to choose the good sources, or if nothing else, find sources that most closely approximate what is true. So how do we do that? Let's examine some principles that might be helpful when looking at historical documents. Good historical sources. 
Last time, we discussed the historical perspective and the goals that historians have while trying to work with what people say. There are a lot of great resources given out by universities and historians that might be helpful in discerning what makes a good source from a historical perspective or not. And I'll be sure to link some of those below. Some of the criteria we'll go over here will be ensuring that we try to find primary sources, contemporary sources, uh, relatively objective sources, I, I use relatively there purposefully, and sor um, sources that have events that are corroborated by other accounts of the event. So we'll just go through each of those now. A primary source comes from a first-hand witness of the event that occurred. Primary sources may include letters, diaries, minutes of a council, photographs, artifacts, interviews, or anything else that comes directly from someone who actually saw the event with their own eyes. These sources are to be differentiated from secondary sources, where an event told by a primary witness is re-explained by someone who, who listened or read what the original witness wrote. Now, primary sources have the advantage of being a little less filtered in terms of the information that they provide, but a downside is that they can often be hefty and difficult to parse through. Many of them also haven't been digitized yet, and so it's difficult for the normal person just to look them up online, and it may take more effort to find than many secondary sources. Secondary sources are often easier to access and can be more direct than primary sources, but are considered to be less authoritative and less authentic. In my experience, secondary sources struggle to maintain every detail present in the primary sources and are more susceptible to manipulation than primary sources as well. Not maliciously, I'll add. Sometimes they're just trying to explain something that they found, and as a result, they, they don't need to go through every piece of relevant context in order to do that. They just explain the things that they, they think pertain to what they're trying to explain. But it's important that you make sure that the secondary sources that you use are well-informed and relatively unbiased. As you can imagine, there is, again, a bit of subjectivity here. But generally speaking, it's understood that primary sources are far more reliable and provide the most accurate information compared to their non-primary counterparts. However, Critical thinkers can't really stop there when it comes to evaluating sources, seeing as the timeliness and contemporaneousness, that's a $5 word, of a source are also important factors that help determine whether a source is good or not. This is likely because the passage of time has been shown to distort memory in a variety of different ways. Uh, however, such distortions, of course, can be minimized if an event is recorded within a short period of time. The, the sooner, the better. A diary entry, for instance, written a few days after an event occurred, would be considered to be more reliable from a historical perspective than an interview given 30 years after an event occurred. Again, this, this doesn't mean that late remembrances should just be dismissed altogether. It just means that critical thinkers need to be careful, or more careful, when analyzing them, even if they're dealing with an eyewitness to the alleged event. Relative bias can also play an important role in discerning whether or not the source is reliable. Um, we talked a bit about bias in the previous article, and I define bias as being a prioritization of one worldview over another. 
No one is completely immune to bias, especially when dealing with controversial topics such as politics or, in our case, religion. It's, it's normal to find bias, both positive and negative, in many of the sources that we as critical thinkers are going to be going over, and that's, that's just true across the board, by and large. But extreme bias, as you can imagine, can either misrepresent information or simply just avoid details that may go against what the author says or wants to, wants to convey. And a critical thinker is able to look at the bias of a source and note if the bias affects the conclusions of the source. Making sure that the claims of a source are corroborated by other sources is also helpful here. Um, if you find that multiple sources are affirming the same details of an event, it's likely that those details did actually occur. And this, this kind of aggregation of sources um, can provide a broader scope of information that may or may not be contained in a singular source and also eliminates potential bias. Corroborating your sources can provide a great deal of strength to support whatever conclusion you may be trying to come up with that, or when you're trying to study an event that actually did occur. Now, much more can be said about how to analyze a good source. So in another episode, we'll be talking about making sure that we put sources in their proper context. Uh, but these principles are definitely a good place to start. Again, you just want to make sure that you're learning about events from people who are actually there as much as possible. Uh, people who talked about the events quickly after they occurred. Um, sources that are relatively unbiased or at least are objective enough to where they can be considered trustworthy. And sources that have details that are corroborated by others. And as long as you do that, you should be able to arrive at mostly the right conclusion, or if nothing else, it'll make it easier for you to avoid wrong conclusions about something. Now, again, all of us prioritize different things when it comes to validity. So for instance, someone may be more interested that an event was recorded quickly after the fact than they may be interested in um, making sure that that the details within that event, that, that source are corroborated by others. There is, there is a little bit of leeway there. Not a ton, but a decent amount that it merits mention. Still, following the guidelines can help make sure that we are as accurate as possible and that we as critical thinkers can use the information that we learn to solve problems. That was a decent amount of content. I hope I haven't lost you yet. But, I did want to take some time now to show you how I would evaluate the validity of a source. And I wanted to practice on one, I wanted to practice on one quote in particular that I found where we have Joseph and Hiel Lewis detail how Joseph Smith met Moroni. Now I'll put the block quote up here so you can kind of read along with me, but essentially he says, Joseph said that by a dream he was informed that at such a place in a certain hill in an iron box were some gold plates with curious engravings which he must get and translate and write a book, that the plates were to be kept concealed from every human being for a certain time, some two or three years, that he went to the place 
and dug till he came to a stone that covered the box when he was knocked down. That he again attempted to remove the stone and was again knocked down. This attempt was made the third time, and the third time he was knocked down. Then he exclaimed, why can't I get it? Or words to that effect. And then he saw a man standing over the spot, which to him appeared like a Spaniard, having a long beard coming down over his breast to about here. The smith putting his hand to the pit of his stomach. With his, the ghost's, throat cut from ear to ear, and the blood streaming down, who told him that he could not get it alone, that another person whom he, Smith, would know at first sight must come with him, and then he could get it. And when Smith saw Miss Emma Hale, he knew that she was the person, and that after they were married, she went with him to the near, to near the place and stood with her back toward him while he dug up the box, which he rolled up in his frock. So here, we have a claim that Joseph Smith was actually dealing with a spirit who appeared as a Spaniard, whose throat was cut from ear to ear. There are a few historical aspects at play here. Chiefly, we have Joseph and Heal Lewis trying to tie Joseph Smith to treasure digging practices. But let's look at the claim itself, that Moroni was a mere treasure spirit with bloody features. Is that possible? Well, we can use the tools that we've talked about to analyze this quote. This source was, at best, a secondhand source, seeing as it was someone else describing an experience that someone told them. Uh, Joseph and Heal Lewis weren't there when Moroni showed up, so it really couldn't have been a primary source. In terms of contemporaneousness, we can also tell from the date that it was written in a April 1879, over 50 years after the events of Moroni's visit occurred. Well, what about bias? Is there bias here? Well, Joseph Lewis, Joseph and Heal Lewis, were cousins of Emma, uh, Joseph Smith's first wife, and was a devout Methodist and antagonist of Joseph Smith throughout his life. In the same journal, he accuses Joseph Smith as being a practicing necromancer. I mean, if you're going to insult someone, that's actually like, honestly, I, 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 would be, I would be down to be called a practicing necromancer. Jokes aside, I'd... in other words, Joseph prophesied by communicating with the dead. I trust that the reader can associate how necromancy would have been viewed negatively in the Bible-based culture of 1800s New England, and Joseph and Heal Lewis didn't want any connection with Joseph for his association with Moroni. But do other sources corroborate Joseph and Heal Lewis's account? Well, I was able to find one that, that kind of doesn't. Fayette Lapham records a story about Moroni having bloody clothes. But it, it suffers from a similar problem of being a third-hand late source with some very incorrect details. You can read a little bit about that in the further studies and the, in the further resources section of the article. As we can see, Comparing this source by Joseph and Heal Lewis with historical criteria outlined in the earlier portions of this paper, we can see that this source may have some problems with it. It may not mean that everything is wrong with it. So, for instance, other details that are corroborated in Joseph Heal Lewis's story include a um, include like waiting for several years. I mean that that's something that's reaffirmed in other sources. So those specific details, you could say, are corroborated. It just, it just means that maybe not everything 
inside this particular quote should be taken at face value and that a critical thinker should exhibit some serious caution when dealing with this source. To wrap up this article, it's clear that there are some sources that are better than others and that we, as critical thinkers, can have a general idea as to what a good source is and what it is not. So to recap, first, a good source is one that is both accurate and is able to help us answer the questions about what we'd like to find out. We can also help establish the accuracy of a source by analyzing whether or not it's a primary source, a contemporary source, and whether or not it's significantly biased and has details that are corroborated. And in spite of the human error that inevitably creeps up in just about every document, we can, we can gain a specific amount of certainty about a source from applying these kind of criteria and analyzing it. While this model isn't perfect and there's likely going to be some disagreement about what makes one source better than another, the tools and questions embedded in this model of evaluating sources can help us gain insights into the value of a historical record. I would recommend that we practice using these guidelines as we study LDS theology and history. And as always, as you do so, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us at FAIR. We're more than happy to be able to help however we can, but that was mostly what I wanted to be able to talk with you about today. And so I appreciate the time that you've taken to listen to what I have to say. And again, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us. We, we would be more than happy to help. We hope to see you again in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, take it easy. Have a wonderful rest of your day.